Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This episode is kindly sponsored by NHS Test and Trace. With the kids finally back at school, hurrah, and some normalcy returning, we're all keen to keep life moving, aren't we? So, NHS Test and Trace are encouraging all adults in England to get tested twice a week using totally free rapid COVID-19 tests, which are now available for all adults in England. So, testing is going to help prevent the around one in three people who have COVID-19 but with no symptoms. So, they spread it with absolutely no knowledge that they are doing that. So we're all really busy, but rapid testing is a fast and easy way to find out if you have coronavirus with results in around 30 minutes. Isn't that brilliant? So you can order tests to home, which is what we've been doing. Go to a test site or participating pharmacies. For more information and guidance online, go to nhs.uk forward slash get tested. That's nhs.uk forward slash get tested. And the more of us that take part, the more we can help protect each other. So, on to this week's episode. Hi, everyone. My guest this week, Eliane Glazer, says that mothers are trying too hard and society is not trying nearly hard enough. She says worldwide, mothers are overworked, underpaid, often lonely, and made to feel guilty about everything. She says that motherhood is one of our modern, enlightened society's awkward little secrets and that fixing this is the unfinished work of feminism. How powerful is that? I love that, that motherhood is feminism's unfinished business. So Eliane is an author, a BBC radio producer, a research fellow at the School of Advanced Study in the University of London, and has just released a powerhouse of a book called Motherhood, a Manifesto. In this conversation, we talk about a really helpful distinction. Well, I found it helpful and I hope that you will too, which is between motherhood, the experience. So the joyful, the hard mess of it, the intoxicating love, and yet the fear and the rage and all those feelings that I'm sure each and every one of you can relate to with your individual experience of motherhood. And also motherhood the institution so separating out the experience of motherhood and the institution of motherhood which is the societal messages that we get about motherhood and the systems that are set up or not as we talk about in the episode to support us I think I found this such a helpful distinction because it enables us to bring more nuance to the conversation than is often present it enables us to think about loving the experience of being a mother most of the time, imperfectly, and being able to hate and complain about and feel angry and rage at the systems and the cultural messages that we as modern mothers operate in that often let us down. So I hope that you find that distinction really helpful. And, you know, this conversation is a little bit different than, I guess, what we would usually talk about on the podcast, but I think it's such a brilliant compliment to last week's episode about the motherhood penalty. And I found it really enlightening, really fascinating. And Eliane's book is full of data and statistics, which you'll hear through the episode. So I hope that you really enjoy it. Please, as ever, do let me know what you think. And here it is. Eliane, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Zoe. Nice to talk to you. I'm really excited. I finished the book last night and I can't wait to unpack it with you. I found bits of it really hard to read and bits of it I was punching the air. So I'm really looking forward to unpicking it. This line that you said has just sat with me for about a week, which is motherhood is feminism's unfinished business. It's just really, really, really powerful because it's so clear and urgent and I'm wondering 
for where we are now, why is motherhood such a barrier to equality? It's funny, isn't it? You know, I grew up as a young feminist and all my friends around me, we all considered ourselves feminists and we were, you know, active in the women's committee at university and we went to careers presentations and they said, you know, you can be whoever you want to be because the world is opening up, things are changing, we've got progress. After all these decades of campaigning by feminists, you know, first wave, second wave, third wave, you know, here we are, the opportunities for girls are, you know, not there yet, but at least they're going in the right direction. You know, and I entered the world of work in my 20s, you know, and embarked on an ambitious career and so on, and had pretty much equality of a kind, at least, with my male peers at work. And then we all became mothers, or most of us anyway. And I guess, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day, and she said, actually, it's motherhood that gets you in the end, and it's motherhood that catches up with you. And suddenly you're back to the 1950s and it just feels like when you become a mother, you realise that actually so little has changed for women as mothers. The gender pay gap, most of that is accounted for by motherhood. And that's just one example. So many areas of life, women who are mothers are living as women in the 1950s did. And so it feels like with motherhood, all of that progress just kind of gets erased, but nobody talks about it. And I'm really interested to talk about why that is. You know, why is it that all of that desire for equality kind of drains away, that the campaign for equality is kind of erased at that point when we become mothers? And why is that? And why is it so hard to talk about? Why is it? I feel that Well, firstly, you know, motherhood, it just happens to you. And it's like a wave breaking over your head. And actually, a lot of women who were really political, who I remember from university, when they became mothers, something changed. But actually, you know, I changed too. Because suddenly you're spun around and you lose your bearings. And so much happens to you in such a short space of time that's so dramatic that actually... It's hard to keep your bearings and your ideals and your principles. And so it just, this great massive thing just happens to you. And then also, I think suddenly because there's someone else in the room, you know, there's a small baby who's vulnerable and you don't know how to look after it. You're terrified that you'll do something wrong and that some harm will come to this vulnerable, tiny, precious being. I think that really saps the energy out of all of that political campaigning sort of energy that you once had and I think it's that it's the idea that mothers and babies are suddenly in this kind of zero-sum game that actually whatever you do for yourself you want to go out and get the job you want or you want to have equality somehow all of that campaigning energy to be equal in the world and to be a, a force in the world is somehow, well, what about the child? And I suppose what I wanted to write about in this book is to really say it's not an opposition between mothers and their children, that we've got to get away from that because that's just such a terrible equation to have in your mind. Whatever I do for myself, well, that's detracting from my child. And that's just a terrible thing. Where did that come from? You talk about it in the book. I mean, it's incredibly well-researched. My whole copy is like highlighted. and under. Where did this come from, this notion of elevating the baby's needs, which obviously, obviously, and you say that kind of goes without saying, but where did it come from, this idea that as a mother, we have to just give up on ourselves, really, to put it simplistically? What are the roots of that? The principle that I want to keep in mind is that it's better for both mothers and children, if both are happy and well and content. It's in the child's interest to have a happy mother who's got enough sleep, who's content and satisfied doing the work that she wants to do. It's not a zero-sum game. But yeah, where did it come from? You know, I suppose in the book, there's a lot of history in there. And what I've tried to do is to put contemporary mothering in historical context so that we can see that our assumptions are not natural, they're not set in stone. They've actually been subject to a great deal of variation 
over the centuries. And in the past, I'm not suggesting that we go back to the past, but in the past, there are very different attitudes really about who should come first, you know, who's the priority. I mean, in the past, children were thought of as they were born evil and they had to be (laughs) educated into being good, which is a terrible thing. Obviously, we don't want to go back to that. But I think the pendulum has swung the other way now that we think children are born perfect, babies are perfect, the sort of blank slates. And it's mothers, you know, that can't make any mistake at any turn. And that if you put a foot wrong, it'll result in terrible harm to your baby. So I think in the past, you know, children, obviously we don't want to go back to children being put out to work in the 19th century. But, you know, I do think part of the problem with this zero-sum game is that we don't have the support structures around us. We don't have those networks of extended family community you know it takes a village to raise a child that's all really gone in our privatized world we're all kind of stuck in our nuclear families there's so little of that extended family support and so I think that's where you get the zero-sum game is that it's just the mother and the child and there isn't that external support to help with that equation and so I think what's happened historically is that all of that support structure has fallen away And then you had the rise of the, you know, a movement to really, for the pendulum to swing back the other way for, you know, you don't want to put children out to work. Well, obviously we don't want that. But then there was this great emphasis on putting the child first, you know, and I think that was really absolutely necessary and so important. But I think what's happened now is that mothers now have almost taken on all of the negativity and the blame and the punishment in that equation. So mothers now you know, we blame ourselves for every single thing (laughs) we do, you know, that's even slightly perceived as wrong or imperfect. So I think that's really where the problem has come in. You know, you mentioned that word wrong a few times. I think something that is so helpful that you do with great depth of research in the book is understanding this idea of right and wrong, because I think you know, the one that I wanted to talk to you specifically about was breastfeeding and bottle feeding because I bottle fed pretty much. I co-fed from the start with my second and then she was on bottles full time from three months. And it was just interesting, the invitation to feel guilty about that. I actually chose not to feel any guilt about that, but the invitation was there. And I noticed I didn't share too much about that on social media which is fascinating, like I was self-censoring. We'll talk about that one specific issue and then we'll go over some other issues because they're all incredibly interesting. But what did you find about data on breastfeeding and bottle feeding? So breastfeeding is a really good example. And here, you know, the history, I think, is very helpful to look back at what women did in the past. So we might think that, you know, breastfeeding is natural. And I think we have the assumption that mothers in the past were more natural than mothers now because now we go out to work and we've got all these kind of sophisticated technologies and so on but actually mothers in the past often did not breastfeed their own children so you know wet nursing was incredibly common in the past you know infants were sent out to wet nurses for you know up to three years you know in some countries sort of 18th 19th centuries and actually, at the beginning of the 20th century, 80% of mothers breastfed their babies. But by the 1950s, it was only 20% were breastfeeding. And then by the 1980s, the rate was up again to 60%. So these habits have really changed, you know, over the centuries. And actually, in the past, breastfeeding was frowned upon because it was thought to kind of make your child sort of soft and overindulged if you breastfed your own baby. So there was a real live debate about breastfeeding pro and anti in the past. But what we've got now, I think, is absolutely this blanket recommendation that all women should breastfeed. And actually, you know, the breastfeeding rates in the UK are incredibly low. They're probably lower than they should be, actually. But the advice is to breastfeed exclusively until the baby is six months. And yet only a tiny fraction of mothers actually do that. Is it 1% make it to six months? I think something like that. In the UK, only 12% are still breastfeeding exclusively at four months. And yeah, only 1% at six months. So all of those other women, you know, the vast majority of mothers are feeling really guilty 
because the advice is the blanket advice to breastfeed exclusively at all costs. And, you know, and I've heard countless stories of women whose babies were losing weight because they were having trouble breastfeeding, their babies couldn't latch on, they had mastitis, you know, women telling me that breastfeeding was more painful than giving birth. And yet they were told by the postnatal midwives they should carry on at all costs. And actually they shouldn't bottle feed because then their baby will get nipple confusion. And there's actually no scientific evidence for nipple confusion. And my feeling about that is that it's almost like, you know, you don't want women to try bottles in case they sort of jump over to using the bottle. So I was told when I actually had to go on a trip when my daughter was four months old, she wouldn't take a bottle. So I was advised to try a cup or a spoon. And I just thought, well, why not just use the bottle? And actually, I ended up using both. And my babies were just hopping quite happily from one to the other. So it's almost like a sort of conspiracy to keep women breastfeeding. But, um, you know, and obviously it's all done in, in good faith. The statistics on breastfeeding, you mentioned Emily Oster, who I think does brilliant work, you know, in debunking some of the medical evidence that underlies the advice. The advice on breastfeeding, exclusive breastfeeding, is taken from the WHO, which is based on countries which have very poor access to clean water. So there, obviously, it makes sense. You know, you've got these companies selling, you know, really expensive formula to women who can't afford it, you know, little access to clean water. It makes sense there. But but actually, breastfeeding, yes, it reduces the risk of tummy bugs in your baby's first year. So, you know, there's been so many studies which have tried to compare the benefits of breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. And really, the only consistent finding is that they reduce the chance of a tummy bug while you're breastfeeding. But that also could be to do with you know, the fact that you're not using an unwashed bottle. And all the other benefits that you read about for breastfeeding, the evidence is not clear either way. It's not conclusive. So all the things that we're told about asthma, diabetes, obesity, IQ, behaviour, all of these things, you know, scientists haven't produced you know, really consistent evidence. So I would say, yes, breastfeeding is probably better, but actually it's not a make or break. You know, if you bottle feed and you're a loving mother, your baby's going to be fine. <laughs> it just doesn't make that much of a difference either way, but it's almost become this totemic thing that people get so wound up about and it just feels disproportionate, really. Why I brought up breastfeeding is because I think it's a really good example, as you said, actually, of what's going on on a more macro level within motherhood, which is this polarisation of views. And I found this, you know, when I was researching a little bit about birth and parenting, often, you know, the advice is so confusing and it is so polarising and I think like you, you know, I want to help mothers get to a place where we can feel okay with our decisions. And I think I'm pretty empowered. I'm pretty enlightened. I'm pretty confident. And it's so fascinating to me that breastfeeding was so hard for me the first time. I did it very differently as I shared the second time, but I still felt a sense of, or I was conscious of the opportunity to feel that sense of guilt. I almost felt like I was cheating because it was so easy to bottle feed I was like this is just joyful and so I think there's something bigger going on here isn't there and I love the way you talk about motherhood as an experience which is what we actually experience as individuals and motherhood as an institution and I think talking about motherhood as the institution so when we come to motherhood we're coming with the cultural expectations the media expectations these guidelines and what that does to us as the mother what did your research show about what those expectations of us do to our individual experience? Well, I think the expectations are, it's interesting, there's lots of scientific studies which, you know, say, well, mothers don't know the risks of X and Y, so we must improve our public health messages. And I understand that objective is that you want to try and improve health outcomes across the population. So you keep hammering away at a message and you shift the dial by, you know, say one or two percent, which makes sense from one perspective. But actually what happens, I think, is that mothers, you know, the amount of guilt and self-punishment that mothers, that I subject myself to all the time, 
it's so crucifying and punishing the way that mothers kind of beat ourselves up all the time. It's just not merited. I mean, you know, the biggest determinant of your child's life chances is the educational and economic circumstances of your parents. So socioeconomic status, you know, is the biggest factor. It outweighs all of the others. And yet you have mothers who are very well-resourced, well-educated, good mothers, good enough mothers, who are beating themselves up about a tiny thing, you know, should we have a forward-facing or a backwards-facing buggy? Yeah, should we breastfeed or bottle feed? You know, natural childbirth versus labour ward, using an epidural. I mean, just none of these decisions really make that much of a difference either way. And yet they become these, these shibboleths that divide mothers, you know, so we all end up on different sides of these culture wars. And actually... It just doesn't really matter that much for the child. And I just think so much attention is diverted and channeled into these questions. And also, one of the other things I feel is that, is that there's so much sort of silent judgment that's attached to one side of the equation. So breastfeeding, bottle feeding is a good example. You know, it's not actually a choice for mothers. If you're going to judge women who bottle feed, then it's not a free choice. You know, and I think that the guilt and the beating ourselves up you know it's almost like there's a sense that if you give mothers an inch we'll take a mile we've got to be kept on our toes and actually you know I think that that guilt and shame is really counterproductive for mothers and for children because you know if we're kind of feeling like we're failing all the time it's not good for the children actually I listened to one of your previous podcasts with Philippa Perry you know she's talking about self-criticism and the corrosive effects of self-criticism. Nobody talks about that. You know, mothers, we're beating ourselves up all the time. What effect does that have on our children? Well, we know now, we know the effect it, it has now on the children, and it's not good in terms of their esteem and their own inner critic and the way that they relate to themselves. It's really not. And yet I think this guilt is all pervasive, isn't it? Tell me about what you learn about guilt and I'm particularly interested in kind of I love this breaking down of the individual experience as in how much we have the power and I stand on the side of the fence slightly more that I think individually that there is so much more that we can do but also institutionally how are we invited and how is I guess the societal structure politics media feeding into this sense of guilt I think the the advice industry the media creates incredibly high expectations for mothers. You know, right from when we're pregnant, you know, we should avoid drinking any alcohol when actually the research on that is also very inconclusive. You know, the research actually shows that drinking a few glasses of wine a week, there's no evidence that it harms a child. Obviously, there's evidence that binge drinking does, but the slight to moderate drinking hasn't been shown to harm children. But, you know, also avoiding caffeine, you know, not touching DIY products, you know, avoiding a whole range of foods, which, again, the evidence behind a lot of those food bans is quite shaky. So you know, it starts from there right through to the method of giving birth. All the women who are made to feel guilty by in the media if they have an epidural, you know, because women in the media are often praised for avoiding pain relief, like Dutch Cambridge was praised for not having an epidural when she had George all those years ago. And so women are often applauded for having a drug-free birth, as it's called. And then the debate about working mothers, you know, still, even now, and the evidence shows that good quality childcare is actually beneficial for children. Even now, in the media, there's so many reports of daycare being damaging for children, increasing their chance of becoming obese and a whole range of possible negative outcomes, which are, again, the evidence is very shaky on. So I think the sort of absolutist message of perfection that mothers are given is really still absolutely endemic, really, in the culture. And I think you've got those messages coming top down and then you've got mothers 
beating ourselves up in private and sort of coming at mothers from both ends, really. And I suppose what I wanted to do in the book is to say, once you start seeing the patterns, once you start seeing how little support mothers actually receive in our supposedly modern enlightened society and how horrible we are to ourselves and how much pressure we have to be a perfect mother and not to make any mistakes. Once you start to join the dots, that's when it starts to become a political issue. We're actually all suffering, you know, individually. And we're all also saying, well, I shouldn't complain. I think there's so much resistance to complaining. Why is that? Because you say, you know, telling the truth is a political act. And I love that. And yet some of the women that do tell the truth are kind of marginalised, I guess, as humorous, right? Slummy mummies, you know, even motherland. You know, it's kind of like funny as opposed to being brought into the mainstream experience. And I know, you know, I've spoken to how many interviews have I done now? 170 with top experts all around the world. And, you know, I've spoken on my platform to thousands of mothers. This is the, in the UK, certainly the predominant experience is one of, I'm not good enough. I feel guilty. I just can't make this work. There must be something wrong with me. Yeah. I can feel the change at the moment that this is motherhood, particularly in the last couple of years with some of the memoirs and the books, including yours that have been written, is slowly starting to rise up. And we're saying, actually, you're not doing it wrong. And this is, we really, really need to significantly look at some of the structures in the way that we treat mothers in this country. Yeah, I think it's looking at the structures really, as you say, looking at it in the rounds and saying, well, it's no wonder mothers are feeling so stretched because, you know, we're trying to look after our kids, often without any childcare, unaffordable childcare. We're trying to also be successful at work. We're trying to still look good, have a, a home that looks nice trying to maintain relationships, there's no input into the system because there's so little support. And yet mothers are basically kind of the scapegoats, really, for society that, you know, even when we're treated so badly and there's so little support, we're even piling on the the pressure to ourselves. I hope the tide is turning, but I still think there's really ingrained resistance to complaining because I think really it's that resistance that we have to tackle because what are the barriers to complaining? I think a lot of the time mothers feel like I'm so lucky to have a child when so many other women can't have children. I'm so blessed to have these children. And to look at that, well, then we have to say, well, yeah, we have to not set up this kind of competition between women and women who could have children, women who couldn't. And it's terrible to experience fertility difficulties. And and yet if you become a mother, yes, you're lucky to have the children, but that still means that you can complain rightly about the conditions in which you're doing this incredibly challenging job. And, you know, and I think too often women are set up against each other in this kind of hierarchy of suffering, which silences complaint. But also, I think when mothers complain, it's read as kind of criticism of the children. Oh, well, you don't like being mother. You don't really like your children. You know, I love being a mother. I would willingly jump in front of a bus for my children. You know, this has nothing to do with my attitude towards being a mother. It doesn't detract from being a mother. And I think that's where that really useful distinction between motherhood as an experience and motherhood as an institution and the way it's managed in society, which was first articulated by Adrian Rich, you know, in her amazing book of Woman Born. It's so important to separate your love for being a mother and your love for your children. And yet you can still say, hang on, there are things that are wrong with the way that motherhood is managed in society. It's so true. And you say in the book, you know, the good bits are plentiful, but we don't need to talk about those. We all know if you're a mother, you know, we know that heart-wrenching love, you know, when they run to you at the school gates or, you know, when they first say, mum, we all know that. And I feel like there's so much conversation still maybe on the amazing bits, which of course is important to validate those and be present for those and enjoy them, right? Because that's why we're doing this really, really hard thing is to enjoy those, of course. But I think you're right. And I like the urgency that you bring to needing change. 
what are some of the big changes that you think we need to see? I think it's really not rocket science. You know, I think it's like really looking after women in pregnancy instead of just having a whole list of banned activities and foods and drinks, but actually supporting women in pregnancy. Now, I found pregnancy, particularly the first three months, really, really difficult. And actually depression in pregnancy is really common. And a lot of mental health problems that postnatal depression and so on, a lot of those conditions actually begin in pregnancy. And yet women who are pregnant are expected to feel so joyful and excited. And which, you know, I felt all of those things too, but I also felt this kind of real darkness in the first three months. And But you're not allowed to talk about that because, you know, that's you being ungrateful. And then during birth. So I think the way that we manage childbirth is still barbaric. You know, why should mothers have to choose between the labor ward where you can have anesthesia and the midwife led birth unit where you can't have anesthesia why not just have all the options in the same room and then you just see how your birth goes and what you need you know and the judgment that women still feel for having a lecture cesarean even though those are nicer said explicitly that you're allowed to choose to have a cesarean even if there's no medical need, and yet mothers are still feeling, you know, like they failed if they have an elective cesarean or they didn't do it properly, you know, there might be an effect on the child. And none of that is true. So, you know, I had an elective cesarean after my first traumatic emergency cesarean. You know, even I felt like I failed, you know, it's ridiculous. You know, I wrote a book about this stuff, you know, even, even I feel like, I didn't have an authentic birth experience. You know, I took the easy way out. You know, so these attitudes are so pervasive. I was left traumatized by my first birth. You know, I had an emergency cesarean under general anesthetic. You know, I'd been sent home by a midwife who said, oh, you're not in established labor. Come back when you're really in labor. You know, so I came back and I had this rare complication and it ended up being really dicey and I was in hospital for six days. There's no reason for me to have, have had that traumatic experience actually if I just have you know if my wish to stay in hospital had been respected you know and there's really good organizations you know now who are working with doctors and midwives to make sure that women's choices are being respected and their autonomy is being respected in birth so during birth and after birth so women are just not supported after birth you know rates of postnatal depression you know one in five that's possibly even a conservative estimate so you know I think depression after birth or a kind of range of feelings that tend towards depression as well you know isolation anxiety low moods just endemic really amongst mothers so support for women after they give birth and that's not just the NCT you know I think we need really structured support and I think that there are improvements coming down the line in terms of maternity services to try and improve support for new mothers and mental health support for new mothers And then I think we need to address work. So, you know, initiatives like a shorter working week for both men and women, I think would really help. Parental leave arrangements just not working at all. I mean, you know, 3% of men take up shared parental leave. So the inequalities, you know, between men and women in parenting, you know, that's a whole other subject in itself. But still, even amongst really progressive, enlightened couples, women are doing overwhelming majority of childcare, domestic work in the home. And it's really toxic for couples, for, you know, for partnerships. It's bad for everyone. You know, the dads get sidelined and resentful. The mothers are resentful, bitter, knackered. You know, <laughs> The children are not happy because the parents aren't happy. You know, I just think the kind of 1950s domestic arrangements that we have even now is kind of a whole other topic so I think a shorter working week for men you know to enable them to spend more time with kids that would be a step in the right direction but also I think there's got to be you know a culture change within partnerships you know about trying to address some of those really entrenched dynamics between couples you know I think that you get this expertise gap that really opens up in maternity leave where you know, if you do something every day, you just become better at it. You kind of, you tune into your children, you know how to diffuse rows, you know about all the practical stuff, what they've eaten, (laughs) whether their shoes are too small. If you don't do it all the time, you just become less competent at it. And then it's less efficient for you to do it. So the mum just says, oh, I'll do it. 
and that gap just gets reinforced so I think really some of those dynamics within couples you know that really needs a culture change but and then finally just you know we need to just address this culture of blaming mothers keeping them on a short leash you know criticizing their every behavior this idea that actually we need to somehow keep mothers in check otherwise the whole give them an inch philosophy which I think is really what governs messages to mothers you know really ranging from kind of like public health messaging right through the advice industry and into the media you know I think we really need to say actually the majority of mothers are really doing their best and really trying as hard as they can be to be good mothers and actually if we tell mothers they have to be perfect then when they fail they just feel wretched and that just makes it worse whereas if we have a more tolerant message of the good enough mother then everyone relaxes and the mother relaxes into her relationship with her child is able to tune into her child and it creates this virtuous circle it's just so fascinating as you were talking you know a i was thinking about the size of the problem and the challenge you know thinking about what micro steps we can take you know the women listening to this the mothers listening to this are typically quite empowered intelligent women and I'm thinking about what can we do the other thing that just struck me as you're thinking actually throughout the whole book was just the diversity and you talk about it in the conclusion if there is one right way which of course we know there isn't to do this although in the UK I think you're right we have this idea that there is then there's just this huge diversity across time and geography. And yet we all measure ourselves against this kind of norm, as you say, that comes down from this institution of motherhood. And I would love to see, you know, I think if we as the mothers, without putting it back onto us, you know, while we're waiting for this societal change, you know, if we as the mothers could feel more confident and more empowered to, as you say, even notice these messages that would change everything because as you say, you know, I was reading, you know, in some countries they leave their children in the snow to sleep because they think it makes them sleep better. In some countries, the children go on the tube at age six. In some countries, it's like, for me, what reading your book, I was really thinking about individual empowerment whilst we wait for the systemic changes. And I'm wondering what your view is on that and how you keep yourself protected from these cultural messages to feel like an empowered mother today or do you feel feel like an empowered mother you know I'm in the thick of it myself I mean yesterday we were trying to get the kids ready for school they were bickering and it pushed my buttons because we were late for school so I shouted at them and I just thought this is crazy you know I've just written a book about motherhood my children are not really young they're nine and eleven now how come I'm still failing still learning these lessons but this morning I didn't shout at the kids when they were bickering but I did shout at my husband (laughs) isn't that part of the problem though like there's nothing wrong with shouting at our kids I mean if we're doing it constantly all day every day of course but isn't that part of the problem that we shout at our kids because it's effing hard and then we instantly shout at ourselves effectively we turn it in on ourselves yeah So I'm still learning, but I think the point is that, you know, and I've had terrible evenings where, you know, my husband has been out, I've been exhausted, you know, particularly when the kids were younger, actually. They're fighting, I'm trying to make dinner, the dinner is burning. I shout at the kids and then I feel terrible. And I think, oh my God, the neighbours can hear. But then I feel like, oh my God, you know, everything is ruined. I'm a terrible mother. And I sort of beat myself up. And that actually makes me act worse. You know, if I had said to myself, you know, and actually in the book, you know, I talk about a past generation of psychologists and psychiatrists and psychoanalysts who said, look, it's better to acknowledge that we're imperfect parents. It's better for the children because if you've got a perfect mother who never loses her temper, you know, you have this blank face. You know, there's this incredible psychoanalyst, Wilfred Bion, who said he tells the story of a boy who, when the boy had a tantrum, the parents would never lose their temper. They would just sort of calmly deal with the child. And actually, in the end, he started just interacting with the family dog because the dog could be relied upon to provide kind of an authentic response to the boy's emotions and emotional expressions. And actually, I think mothers are told 
know, we shouldn't react when we're having our buttons pressed. You know, we should just make keep our temper. And those evenings where I've lost my temper with the kids and I've gone on to parenting websites, you know, after they've gone to bed, I pour a glass of wine, I go onto parenting websites and I type in, <laughs> have I traumatised my child for life by shout, yelling at him so loud that my throat hurts? And then Google finishes those sentences for me because so many mothers have typed in similar questions. And yet the parenting websites take this kind of zero tolerance approach. So they say things like always lead by example, always parent using, you know, positive reinforcement techniques. And I think, right, well, I've just failed completely from the word go because I haven't done that. And yet you go to this earlier generation of of child psychologists. They said, no, you know, Donald Winnicott, you know, the father of child psychology in, in many ways, he really wrote about the importance of the good enough mother, not the perfect mother. This idea that actually, if you're altruistic and you're self-sacrificing and you're perfect towards your children, that raises them to not be able to tolerate disappointment, imperfection. And it also teaches them that their outbursts, you know, have no effect on the mother. You know, they're trying to get some sort of reaction out of you, some sort of authentic reaction. So, you know, I think that message of trying to kind of reduce the pressure on yourself by understanding that actually what matters is the overall pattern, as you say, with your child. Are you in general a responsive, warm mother? And actually when you do have these outbursts, which you inevitably do because, you know, children push your buttons more than any time since you were yourself a young child you know when you acknowledge that your mistakes and you say to you know and I do say to my kids that okay I'm really sorry I shouldn't have said that and I kind of own up well then they have an experience of somebody who's kind of able to learn from their mistakes so I think you know the power of apology so yes I think really by looking at these insights from the past from an age when actually the culture was less perfectionist than we have now I'm hoping that it will help mothers to take the pressure off themselves and that in turn will lead to that virtuous cycle where they're able to just actually enjoy their relationship with their children, you know, which is about letting that imperfection in. Yeah, and I think it's such an important thing that you said, you know, in general. And I'm wondering, when you had that experience when you sat down at your computer to Google, because I personally put myself on that a kind of ban doing that because it never helps me. What I do is I turn to my journal to find out what's going on for me. I find that way more empowering than kind of let's find out what some other people think. But I know that it makes sense to do that, to seek that sense of validation and community and support. And yet so often what is found is the opposite. What would you say about that experience? What were you seeking? And would you do that now, having written the book and knowing what you know? Or would you go inward? Or would you go to friends? Or Because I think that's such a common experience where people go online to search for that validation and the opposite is what they get. Yeah, well, I think you were right to avoid doing that. And I suppose when I've done it, I sort of know, I've known that it's not going to be productive, but it's almost... Right. <laughs> you know, kind of scratching an itch or part of the kind of whole self-flagellation, I guess. I mean, I think that mothers are quite buttoned up about these kinds of experiences, which I believe are universal, and yet they're actually quite hard to talk about. So I think, you know, I think at the school gates, I actually overshare at the school gates because I feel like it builds solidarity. And it's really important that we're honest, you know, as you said, you know, I think well, as I say in the book, you know, honesty is a radical act or it's a political act. Actually, it's what Zoe Williams very kindly said in the back of the book. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's really true. But that was really the whole point of the book is to kind of universalize these experiences and that it's painful to admit to these kinds of experiences and these feelings. And I find it hard to admit my own failings, but I really feel like when I do open up, then I find other mothers do also say, oh God, I'm so glad you said that because I just had a similar experience 10 minutes ago. You know, it's a way of kind of normalizing experience. 
because I think what happens is you just feel like it's just so terrible what you did. But actually, if you know that everyone shouts, then it destigmatizes it. Yeah. But I think the advice industry is so terrified of destigmatizing and normalizing shouting that it takes a zero tolerance approach. But what it doesn't understand is that that itself is really counterproductive, you know, for mothers and for children. I think that really is the bit that's missing. Well, in my experience, you know, of, of this, the kind of, you know, the advice, and I've read, as you can imagine, most of the books on this sort of stuff, you know, there's very little room for nuance because, you know, you'll get someone on a forum saying it's all very, very black and white. And if you feel grey about something in the middle, it can make you question your own judgment or feel like, well, I have to pick a side or, you know, there's the people that tend to hang out on those forums in my experience of, you know, when I was digging in them early in my motherhood experience are not the people who bring that kind of more balanced. Yeah. That's That's why they're not hanging out on them. They're hanging out there because they've had extreme experiences that they want to warn about or share about. And I think it's a huge part actually of the disempowerment of mothers forums like that. I really do. And it's a shame, isn't it? Because I think in the early days, those of, you know, Mumsnet and NetMums, you know, there was this hope that they would provide this kind of forum of solidarity and, and sisterhood. And I think that that is there sometimes. But I think that it's something about the fact that they're online, I guess, is, um, you know, like all social media becomes very divisive, as you say, and polarised. But I just don't think that they've really become those places where women are, you know, able to find that support genuinely, or there's a lot of sort of faux support, which is a bit passive aggressive and a bit judgmental. So I think it's hard to find support. And I think that, you know, you mentioned earlier, I wanted to pick up on the slummy mummy phenomenon and motherland, you know, and I think, you know, it's almost like that's where it's gone. Like that's where the recognition of imperfection has gone a lot of the time is into those kind of more comic portrayals. And I think you know, a lot of them are really brilliant. Like I think Motherland is really <laughs> well written and is so true in so many ways. And a lot of those slummy mummy, you know, it's a, I probably wouldn't call themselves that, but that sort of genre, you know, kind of hilarious and, you know, cathartic actually. But I think that there's also another side to the humour is that, you know, I just feel like, oh God, you know, I've got to be funny as well. <laughs> and I think it almost has a sort of, it sort of diffuses the, political energy just to sort of make yourself the kind of clown in it all like depict a mother you know just like falling on her face you know well actually well nothing ever changes we just sort of it's like a safety valve we can all laugh about it and then hit the bottle at the end of the evening and I think well actually no it's actually about taking this seriously yeah I totally agree with you and I in a way, I kind of enjoy that humorous take for sure. Like I'm not, like, you know, but I feel the same. I feel like when we laugh at it and we laugh with it, then it's almost like a resignation. Yeah. I do feel very strongly about the drinking message as well, because I feel like that is incredibly unhelpful and, and kind of offers up a solution as a glass of wine at the end of the night, yeah. which it absolutely is not. Yeah. And so I feel, I feel the same. I, and I was watching Motherland last night and I was thinking, you know, it is very watchful. It is very funny. And yet, if we allow that narrative to continue too long, I think it blocks us from the, the anger and the need that we have for change. Yeah, exactly. So I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think it's helping mothers to feel like they're not alone that it's about normalizing difficult feelings and difficult experiences that society tends to sweep under the carpet and if we look to all the variety of ways that children were brought up in the past and the variety of ways they're brought up all around the world in different countries and cultures then that variety can help parents and mothers to question these norms that they've been dealt and to feel that actually what's important is being an imperfect but good enough mother and that that's not just inevitable but it's actually beneficial for themselves and for their child. And what's next for you with this book? You know are you kind of on the campaign trail with it? Are you letting it go and seeing what comes back? Well 
I wrote an article in The Guardian last week about it and I had an amazing response where women wrote to me saying, this is the first time I've ever written to an author. I never normally do this. feels weird. But thank you for making me feel seen. And I was so moved by that reaction because I wrote this book in a bubble, you know, mostly during lockdown last year. And yet it's been so lovely to see that my own personal experience and my on, I've tried really hard to be honest about my own experience, but also to set my experience in historical and scientific context to try and, yeah, try and normalise some of the things that I'm describing. And the reaction has been so incredible that I feel like that in itself makes it all worthwhile. So I just hope that the book makes mothers, yeah, feel more entitled to ask for more. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a powerful thing to end on, is feeling entitled to ask for more. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care, I'll see you next time.